0: Well good morning brothers and sisters. I hope that you all are are doing well this morning and if you would go ahead and turn in your bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin reading there in just a few seconds, a few minutes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Last week as we finished chapter 2, the whole chapter was been a, has been about exposing false teachers, and the futility of those who follow them. The futility of following them, the outcome of of following them. It was some of the the strongest language in in the, the New Testament, at least, if not maybe the whole Bible, against false teachers. I don't know. It gets pretty strong in the Old Testament toward false teachers. But this is some of the strongest of, of all the, the New Testament. And we saw three things last week about false teachers that Peter exposes. He exposes their, their arrogance and their ignorance. He exposed the, the bankruptcy of their lifestyles. Remember the, the sin that they were in. They were not afraid of it. They lived it out in the, in the open, and they reveled in it. They reveled in their, their deceptions. Their, their hearts and minds were as was filled with sin and desired sin. It was insatiable to them. And we saw the outcome of their life. The outcome of their lives is that they they promised freedom, but yet they themselves were enslaved to their depravity and to their, and to their sin. So there is a, a good reason why Peter spoke so harshly about them and to them and to the church, because He is comparing it in some sense, he was comparing it to Christ. This is when you have the gospel and you have Christ, this is so much better. This is so much better. It's a horrible trade to give up the gospel and believe lies and to believe charlatans and to believe depraved sinners. What a horrible trade. Jesus is humble and loving and giving and compassionate and kind and caring and loving. And through his life, death, burial, and resurrection has given us everything. Why would we trade it for such trinket things, such fleeting desires, and such worldly enticements that moth rust? and thieves can steal. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you believe anything else? Why would you seek and believe weak men and women and their weak beliefs when we have Christ revealed in His Word? This morning as we move into chapter three, Peter shifts from exposing false teachers to encouraging and exhorting Christians to strengthen them in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in this particular way that they would be certain of the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 as we start reading in verse 1. Now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that had existed was deluged, with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see, his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Last week, we brought up the second coming of Christ as an encouragement that by his resurrection, we know, that through, we know that in Christ, that though we may die, we will soon one day be raised again, no longer with perishable bodies, but with bodies that are imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15. And here in chapter 3, Peter brings up the second coming of Christ again, and he says, you better be certain that Christ will come because it's going to happen. You better be certain of this because God has promised it, and God fulfills his promises. And from the text, this is one of the denials of the false teachers, is the second coming. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16. Peter said that that he was being accused of of teaching these clever myths and the clever one of the clever myths that he was teaching was that Christ was coming that the second coming of Christ would happen and that the church should be ready and we'll get to that soon enough but the second coming of Christ however within the church is not as frequent a topic of conversation among Christians or in the church or or preaching as maybe it should be. It, it flows throughout the Bible. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Historically, before the 20th century, there was much teaching and preaching, proclamation of the, of the return of Christ and all the implications of the second coming of Christ that the church should continue in repentance and, and faith and have hope, but also in encouragement for holy living and holiness. And there were many hymns that reflected this desire for the for the return of Christ and for him to come and to make all things new and for his church to to endure despite the time. From the 20th century into the 21st century there has been a large, there's been a shift, a large shift that has taken place from the focus on Christ's return to a desire to go to heaven. Now, historically and theologically, we can see why this shift has, has occurred and has taken place with uh, 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 an assurgence or resurgence of, of revivalism, as well as being an influence of, of some forms of liberalism. Hymns, again, Reflect what was preached. Songs like "Shall We Gather at the River," "When the Roll Is Called Up Yonder," "When We All Get to Heaven." Now, I'm not picking on those hymns. In fact, some of those hymns are are, are are fun to sing and they're they're good to sing. However, certainly the desire for heaven is a lesser desire than the return of Christ. We also understand that in the church. Music, what we sing in the church, church music, hymns, choruses, songs, whatever, those things are they are downstream from the theology of the church. And what's theologically present is what is sung and what is produced. Listen to the songs that a church sings, and I can tell you what they believe. However, for today, for today, to even talk about the second coming in, in, in many circles, including the church, to talk about eschatology, uh, will will probably uh, be uh, what will probably come up is that we will be accused of being pessimistic. We'll be accused of of, of being someone who who is always looking on the negative. It's just not popular. Somehow, in some way, the return of Christ, that's eschatology is not encouraging. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you two reasons. Number one, the first reason is theological. Theology, to many people, is this very scary word. Doctrine to them means division, or it means something that's just difficult, and often to many, it just means something unnecessary. And that in itself is saying something theological. However, people don't want to talk or think about theology, particularly in the terms of, of God is, is a holy and righteous judge. They want to wipe that part away. and And God being holy, righteous, and as judge, that's... Theological because God is holy in his character. That's who he is. He's, he's holy and he's righteous. And according to his holiness and his righteous, he will judge the ungodly and the wicked. That's theological. Popular Christianity teaches that God is loving, which is Theological. God is kind, God is gracious, and that's theological. And those things are true, but that's where it stops. No more is it God is holy and righteous, but that he's just loving and gracious. And we know, being the biblical scholars that we are, that once you do that, what is the need for substitutionary atonement? What is the need for the cross? So why such denial of these things that are so theological and so correct? Well, the second reason is anthropological. And that runs right with the first, meaning man. And the reason is, is people do not want to think that God is just and that God is righteous and that God is holy. And that he is the righteous judge because if he is the righteous judge, then certainly that judge will judge all of mankind according to his righteous standards, not our own. And because man knows that they are morally and spiritually corrupt and outside of the grace of God and the work of Christ and faith in Christ, man cannot stand in God's righteousness. So along with inerrancy, inspiration of the Bible that is attacked, so is substitutionary atonement, so is the doctrine of hell. Eschatology is, is, is uh, downplayed, not spoke about, and a correct view of the doctrine of man. So man believes, they suppress the truth. They believe that God is, is loving. And that God will save, but conveniently forget of God's judgment. And this is why the second coming is downplayed or just spoke of in passing or or spoke of as being this is divisive or or just uh, pessimistic for the Christian to believe. But scripture is clear. The day of the Lord The day of judgment, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ is an ongoing theme that runs from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. So I have three points from our passage this morning that as the church, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, we must be certain. We must be certain to remember. Remember what God's word says. Second, we must remember that there will be scoffers, and third, we must remember and be certain, or we must be certain in the Word of God. So first, the church is always to remember that Christ is coming back. In verse 1, the apostle sends this, he says he's, he's writing this now in his second letter that he has written to the church, to them. And we know that First letter, 1 Peter. And so this is the second letter, 2 Peter. It's very obvious. Seems pretty easy. And so it's amazing to me how in my, my study this week, how many scholars have spilled so much ink in trying to say something different. Isn't that crazy? But what I want you to see is the change of tone here in chapter three. And the change of tone, and he, he uses this word that we're so familiar with, and that is, that is beloved. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So the tone is completely changed. No longer to, to moron, false teachers who are like wild animals that need to be destroyed and shot in the street kind of thing. That's very harsh language. To now, beloved church. To beloved. Used 66 times in the New Testament. Do you know that? I didn't know that until I searched it in my cool Bible program. does it for me. 66 times used in the New Testament. Nine of those times refers to Christ, my beloved son. Once for Paul and Barnabas, as beloved missionaries being sent out by the the elders in uh, Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, he's, they send them out with the letter back to the church in Antioch and basically saying, yeah, we, yeah, we agree that God's moving here. And God's doing a great work there. Once for Barnabas and for Paul and sending them out. Nine more times used to recognize specific individuals named within the letters. Like Paul speaks of his beloved son, Timothy. And one more time in Revelation 20, speaking of a beloved city. And so that leaves 46 times referring to the church, God's people, as beloved. And this is a favorite of Peter because guess what? Within chapter 3, he's going to use it four more times. To speak of God's people as beloved and loved and not just loved by him but loved by God. He's truly saying something mighty here as the the tone just completely changes. There's this loving, tender, careful shepherding of the church here for, for God's people to believe and to be certain in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which always must include that he is coming back. I want you to be sure, beloved. I want you to be built upon this truth and this knowledge of what I have been telling you of Christ. He says, I'm telling you this, beloved, because I want to to stir you up. I want to stir your your sincere mind, meaning your, your wholesome thinking. I want you to have wholesome thinking, right thinking, and right desire when it comes to these things. I want to cultivate. I want to build you up. And I want you to know and believe that, that the second coming of Christ, that this is good and that it's right. He says he wants to stir their, their minds. He's encouraging them, engaging their mind before their emotion, which is pivotal in the scripture. The Word of God engages our minds to think logically, factually, truthfully. Emotions are important, but it is our minds that, 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 that the Lord stirs in, in our minds, stirs them up that brings them about love and then brings about desire and passion. He wants to stir them up as a way of, as a way of reminder. You might remember back in chapter 1, That this is one of Peter's goals, is to remind them, remember before, the the listed qualities, the good conduct, what it means to mature and be sanctified in Christ, for them to be established in the truth, and to always stir them up. Why? Because remember, he's about to die. This is it. I want to take every moment seriously. There is something very important going on here. Maybe we should take, again, as we did previously, take into consideration the importance of remembering, to understand the idea of what the Scriptures do in reminding us and constantly calling us to remember. And the reality is, how destructive is, it is when we forget. When we forget the gospel, even for just a moment, when we forget the truth and the promises of God's word just for a moment, when we forget right theology and biblical doctrine and we forget the second coming, teaching fades, truth fades, hearts fade, desires fade, and forgetting is the beginning of disobedience, just as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we forget God's word, we stop fearing Him. And when we stop fearing Him, we begin to live for the world and the desires of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes. And if you forget long enough, you can fall away and give into sin and suppress the truth. But verse 2 says that you should remember the predictions. Of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. And we'll get to that verse in just just a minute in its detail. But what is he reminding them to remember? He's reminding them to remember God's word. To not be far from it. To not let it fade from your mind. To not let it fade from your heart. Remembering God's word keeps us from stumbling. It keeps us from sin. And on the positive side, it keeps us close to the Lord. It keeps us satisfied in him. It is a daily duty and a daily joy. But brothers and sisters, like I said just a few weeks ago, that it's not ours alone. But we know that in John 14, we've been told that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to remind us of all things that Christ has taught us in his word. We have been given the greatest of all helpers. Given to each of us who are in Christ, the helper, the Holy Spirit of God, this third part of the Trinity. And who gives his spirit? The Father, who sends his spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we know, fulfills what Peter has said, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But the Holy Spirit is doing what? He's reminding us of what we've been taught. What we've been taught about God's Word. He's reminding us of God's Word. What a great gift that we have from the Lord, because He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailty, and He surely knows how quickly we can forget. In God's Word, We forget not only the suffering Savior who died on the cross as the substitute for sinners. We forget the resurrection of our Savior and his ascension into heaven. But we also forget the prediction of the prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and what the apostles say. And it's very clear that Jesus Christ is coming back. Listen to these. More than a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. One-third of that predictive prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. There are over 1,800 references to the Lord's return in the Old Testament. And 17 Old Testament books give significant attention to the day of the Lord. Out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, There are over 300 references to the second coming of Christ. That works out to be one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament speak directly about the second coming of Christ. And one of those four that are missing is Galatians, which certainly implies the return of Christ. One more stat, and I think this will put put it in perspective. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, right? The incarnation of Christ. There are eight more on the second coming of Christ. Wow. With that in mind, do you think the second coming has been disregarded way more in the Bible than it should be? The prophets proclaimed it. Isaiah, we read it this morning, morning. Isaiah 25. Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all predicting that the Messiah is not only coming, but that he is going to come again that the day of the Lord is coming, that the day of judgment is coming, and that when he comes, he's going to restore and he's going to make all things new. Did you hear that in Isaiah 25 this morning? Did you have ears to hear, to see that, and to hear that? And as Peter says, Jesus himself, the Lord, gave several examples that he is coming back. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke chapter 12. The apostles as well in the New Testament spoke of of Christ coming back. Peter's doing it here. Paul has done it throughout his letters, affirming and confirming to the church and to have ensure assurance in the, the promised return of Christ, and not to mention the Apostle John in the revelation. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming soon." And that's a promise. He didn't say that, but that's a promise. He's coming soon. That's that's a promise that we hold on to. And how do we know that this promise will be fulfilled? Because God's word clearly says so. God's word clearly says so. And if God's word says so, then we can hold on tight to those promises. We can believe and we can be certain. And this is why Peter is reminding us, stirring our minds to remember this very truth. This morning, as you can see, as we do at the end of every month, we take the Lord's Supper. And since I'm leading the supper this morning, I'm going to steal some thunder from it. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Why do we take a little piece of unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread? When do you ever have unleavened bread? And a little cup of juice. When do we ever do that? Why would we ever do that? Why would we have such a thing? Well, clearly from Scripture, from God's Word, Jesus commands us to do so. And this is what Jesus said. He said, when you you take that bread, or take the bread, which is his body, you see it written on the front of our table here. Do This, and what? Remembrance of me. And when you drink the cup, it is, it is what? It is for the new covenant in my blood. So it's a remembrance of the new covenant. And he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remembering the covenant, we take the Lord's Supper to remember the costs of the new covenant that we enjoy. The new covenant of His blood, the substitutionary atonement, that we are saved by grace alone, through through faith alone. And we enjoy that, we live in that, we delight in that. And the Lord's Supper stirs our minds and our hearts toward Christ to remember him so that we delight in him and that we glorify him. But there's more. Because not only do we do this in remembrance, but we also do this to proclaim. In 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering and we're proclaiming when we take the Lord's Supper. The gospel is about the cross. The gospel is about the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and Christ alone. But it absolutely includes the proclamation that Christ is coming back. So be reminded. Remember, be certain, beloved, that the promises that God's word has told us will be fulfilled to the glory of God. We remember because, secondly, Peter tells us that there will be scoffers. And what do scoffers do? They scoff. That was an easy answer. Y'all should have got that. They ridicule, they make fun of, they, they tear down, they dismantle, they come up with little arguments of why this isn't true, and then they, they use their science and they use philosophy and they use personal experience to tear it down. In context, these scoffers are doing what? They're scoffing at the revelation of God's word. And in particular, they're scoffing at the second coming of Christ. In verse three, God's word says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. See, he told you. That's what scoffers do. Scoffers will scoff. Following what? Their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. And this is what we are to know, first of all. This is what Peter says. This is what you're to know. First of all, church, know this. Beloved church, know this. There will be scoffers, and how you know they're scoffers? Because they're scoffing. And they're going to come in the last days. So the question is, are we in the last days? Should we expect scoffers? And the answer to that question is yes. Because in the New Testament, the term, the, the phrase, the last days, is any time between the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. We live in the last days these days are not yet complete. To us, this this period of time, these last days, seems quite lengthy. And because of that, in these last days, these skeptics, these scoffers will arise. And I don't mean the good kind of skeptics. Skepticism can be good, and it can be appropriate. But these people are like the false teachers of chapter 2. They are the skeptics that cause doubt for destruction's sake. They have their own agendas for sin. Some of us may have legitimate questions about the Bible and about God and about eschatology. You should have questions. But we ask them in faith. We ask them in faith, and we ask those questions directed toward the source for the answer, and that is God's word. And when we hear God's word and God's answer, we believe. Scoffers don't do so. They scoff at the truth. They scoff at God's word. And we know there will be scoffers because the Bible tells us so. Jesus clear, has told us clearly that uh, false prophets and teachers will, will come, and they will come, and they will scoff again specifically at the second coming of Christ. And so if we know that they exist, then we can resist. Now, I'm not telling you anything new, am I? We know there are scoffers. And these scoffers despise God's word. They despise Jesus Christ. They despise Christians. They despise the church and for no other reason than pure hatred, just pure hatred. And so they laugh and they scoff at any idea of a virgin birth, the inerrancy of God's word, a worldwide flood, Moses parting the Red Sea, the resurrection, and especially the second coming of Christ. Now, but not all scoffers have to be have to be the militant kind who devote their lives to destroy Christianity. Some people are scoffers and they don't even realize it. Do, do a little experiment. Find 10 family members or, or friends. They can be Christians or non-Christians. And I want you to share with them the gospel. And I want you to include within that gospel message a very clear biblical idea of what it means that Christ is going to return. You don't have to be an expert of eschatology. Just look at this, and go back to Matthew. Go back to some of the other texts, and just kind of read. Jesus is coming back, and tell them, and convince, show them in a convincing way that you truly believe this, and then wait for their reaction. Not all of them will be scoffers, but I bet you will catch a lot of people off guard. I bet you'll catch a lot of them off guard. I bet you'll you'll get a lot of looks of confusion, like, "What are they?" talking about. This is crazy. Maybe there's some doubt and there'll be some skepticism. And why? Again, go back to what we said in the very beginning, that that the second coming isn't popular in the ways that we've already discussed, which is exactly why scoffers exist. Why they hate the word, God's word, why they hate Christ, why they hate scripture is because they hate his holiness. And Peter says, "They are following their own sinful desires." Meaning, they are finding their joy and their life's complete satisfaction right here. This is a good, um, good statement by Michael Green in his commentary on Second Peter. He says, "Anthropocentric." Hedonism, which means a very—it's a very man-centered thought—and that ends with a uh, um, with pleasure and and gratifying the flesh as the highest desire. So anthropo- anthropocentric hedonism always mocks at the idea of ultimate standards and a final division between saved and lost. For men who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute nothing short of ludicrous. For men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that we are accountable, independent, it is a bitter pill to swallow. No wonder they mock. We mock what we do not like and what we despise. And is that not the culture? Does that not describe the, the culture that we are living in and the world has been? I mean, we're not just talking about ours, Peter's talking about his. And this is what humanity does. So, should we have any surprise that false teachers and scoffers against biblical orthodoxy will come scoffing? Sometimes we act surprised. Sometimes we act like we're, we're we're taken off guard that there are professors at Georgia Southern University that promote wickedness, an outright hatred of God. Sorry, I don't want to wake the baby up. Amen. Peter is doing us a favor here. This is, this is, they're coming. They're here. And then he tells us their argument. Listen to this. He tells us their argument. He say, they say, where is the promise of his coming? The the patriarchs, they've all fell asleep. And since everything, and since everything has continued as it always has from the very beginning of Christian, of creation, excuse me, why should I worry? He hasn't come back yet. Why Why should I worry? Where is he? Show me in the sky. If he's real, right? Remember remember on the cross. If you're son of God, take yourself off the cross. Scoffers. And if he hasn't come back yet, chances are he's probably forgotten you. That's their logic. And based upon their logic, I would say, I haven't been in a car accident yet. Maybe I shouldn't wear my seatbelt anymore. I've never been in an accident. Their argument isn't just based upon incorrect logic, but what they are arguing is insinuating that Christ's second coming is not going to happen based upon a very naturalistic argument. Their argument is saying this, is that our whole universe is a closed system. It's orderly, and it's bound by natural law of physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, and so on and so forth, unless it's conveniently able to free those things, and we'll just do whatever we want. And there's nothing outside of that that influences or interrupts those things. This is ideas called uniformitarianism. Forget that word. You don't need to know it. And basically, it's this, is that through the natural process, the world will continue to go as it's going. And, it has, and the world has no reliance upon any kind of divine intervention. This is a very atheistic and, at best, agnostic view of the world. I mean, isn't this the same worldview? wholeheartedly accepted and promoted around us in this approach to any thought of, of the return of Christ any thought of something catastrophic like uh, like the end of the world just seems insane especially by the return of Christ and there are scientists out there that that believe that the world's going to come to reasons, I don't know, asteroids, uh, climate change, you know, we're all going to drown, who knows. That seems to be the most popular at this point. But they certainly don't believe that the world's going to end because Christ returns. And here's the deception. The deception is this, because as Christians, we would generally agree with the, uniformitar- the, the uniformity of the world. We, we believe in natural law. We believe in science and physics and math and chemistry and biology. We believe those things. However, we believe those things because we believe that God had created it. And God had uniquely designed every single bit of it. We also do not believe that the world is a closed system, but that it's open. Because God's sovereign care is all over creation. It's not closed, it's open. God has placed order. God has placed law. God has placed processes of natural causes. but, But he alone reserves the right to interrupt the world's processes to accomplish his sovereign will. And these scoffers, and they will scoff, they clearly have an agenda. And their agenda is an argument that is naturalistic, atheistic. And agnostic again at best. And lastly, so now we know that there will be scars. Lastly, as the church, we must be certain in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Remember verse 2. We remember the predictions of the prophets and Jesus Christ and the apostles. And this trusting and this looking as to what is at the source of all of our authority, and that is God's word. How do we know Christ is going to return? How do we know the the means by which Christ is going to return? What it's going to look like Well, we get it from God's word? Now, despite false teachers and so many scoffers, Peter says that God's word is trustworthy, and he does so by pointing to how convenient it must be for them to forget facts. He says, look at, look at verse 5. He says, for they deliberately overlook this fact, which means, going back kind of in a nice mode here, he's pretty much saying they're liars. They deliberately lie about this. They forget something that is absolutely crucial on purpose when they say that God does not intervene cosmologically and that he, he, uh, and that he never has and never will. And what does Peter say? Peter points us to creation itself. Because after all, they bring up creation first. in their argument, creation. So Peter says, well, wait a minute. How did creation begin? Was creation just completely naturalistic? Did it just happen on its own? No, he says, no, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed without water and through water by the word of God. Meaning God has spoken and through his word, right? Through the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles. And at the beginning of the world was created by his word. And Peter is speaking about Genesis chapter 1. Particularly Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 when he says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was all over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And he says, but God spoke He was spoke by his word. And just like Genesis one tells us, verse three, God spoke and created. Verse six, God spoke and created. Verse nine, God spoke and he created. Verse 11, God spoke and he created. Verse 14, God spoke and he created. Verse 20, he spoke and he created. Verse 24, he spoke and he created. In verse 26, he spoke and he created. And then in verse 28, God spoke again to bless man and woman. Who was made in his image. God spoke, and he separated the waters by making the expanse of the sky so that the waters were above and below the expanse. The water was collected on the earth so that there would be dry ground, and this means that God had done what? God had interacted God created by his own very word. It didn't just happen on its own or through random chance or processes. Scoffers are losing at their own game. And they're totally missing the fact that it was God. They're not just missing it. They're intentionally ignoring it to deceive that it was God who sovereignly acted and moved and spoke and created everything in verse 6 Peter second argument of god's intervention in the world he says and that by these means by the means of these mean the word of god the world that existed was deluged with water and perished so through god's word he created the heavens and the earth and all that there is and through his word he sustains the world and by right he says and by these means the world then existed God is sustaining the world. And then by the same means, what did He do? God flooded the world, the deluge. He flooded the world, destroyed the world, not only, uh, destroyed the world, only saving Noah and His family and the animals on the ark. Brothers and sisters, the Noaic flood was not just a natural disaster. It wasn't 42 hurricanes hitting at once. It was by the sovereign Lord of the universe who judged the world, a world who had plunged themselves wholeheartedly into sin and rejecting God. And the means by which God judged the world was through natural means, the water. It was God who acted and judged. Yet again, Conveniently overlooked, right? The Noahic flood. And by the way, still intentionally overlooked. Then his last argument, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The same word, God's word, God spoke. What what is he doing? What is he going to do? He's going to speak. And when he speaks, he returns. He's going to return again to judge the, the living and the dead, but not this time with water, but with fire. Right now. Creation is being sustained by God's word, but there will be a time when the same word, the same word will be spoken and all of creation will be consumed by fire. There is only one place in the Bible, we are told, where the world will be destroyed by fire, and that's it right here. The warning to us, brothers and sisters, is we should not ignore God's word. Do not ignore the sufficient of God's Word, but instead have certainty in what God's Word says. Be certain in the biblical narratives uh, and, and truths. The things that the scoffers ignore and scoff at, we have certainty in. And that we do not forget what the prophets have said. We do not forget what Jesus himself has said. We don't what the apostles have said, and that we are in the last days, and brothers and sisters, we can be assured that Christ is coming. Let's not assume that everything will just be like it will always be. Just because he did not come back in the lifetime of our grandparents or in the lifetime of our parents, do not assume that he will not come in your lifetime. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, this glorious truth, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is meant to build our confidence. It's meant to build our confidence and to encourage us to wait patiently, to wait patiently in this world that is full of sin and wickedness. Jesus may come back today. He may come back tomorrow. Tomorrow. Or it could be another 1,000 years. But God's word is still true. And we can be certain, whether it be our generation or a 1,000 years later, he will still fulfill his promises. And that reorders all of our thinking, doesn't it? And and maybe this is another reason why this doctrine is just not talked about. We like our lives the way they are. We like the comfort. We like the priority of satisfying the flesh, investing in in this world instead of treasures in heaven. But God's word and and, and these things, it it reorders our thinking. It changes our priorities every day. It changes how we, we think. It changes what we delight in. It changes what we love. It helps us to have less affection and love for this world or for Christ. It sets our, our hope firmly upon Christ and not our own. That's what it does. It establishes us. But it also awakens us to the reality of coming judgment. And so... That would pursue holy lives and and, and godly lives, and we would put away our sin, we would put it away, we would put it to death, because these things, this truth, this promise stirs our affection for what is to come when Christ returns. Be certain, church, be certain, beloved, that Christ will come and we long for it, and we pray for as we say, come Lord Jesus, even so come. And all God's people say,